Be turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. We're wrapping up our uh, study of Joseph tonight. And one of the things I wanted to end with was what God ends with in Genesis. It's basically about the legacy that we leave. We're going to look at three different people, three different types of legacies that they left. None of these people were perfect. I don't want you to ever get that impression at all. Joseph is obviously the best of the examples, and yet he had many failings. And he was very imperfect and inconsistent. But at the same time, at the same time, how we prepare, how we live this life in preparation for the life to come dictates what legacy we're going to leave. We're going to leave legacies to our family, to our friends, and to those acquaintances that we have. And many of those legacies are going to be long-lasting. We need to take heed to how we're living our lives because in the tumultuous lives that these people led and that we lead sometimes, we have a choice to leave a bitter, suspicious, hate-filled, paranoid legacy or a hope and confidence grounded in God's promises, that type of a legacy. I want to leave a legacy of faith, forgiveness, and generosity. And only what I know about God is going to help sustain me through this journey of faith. It's not going to be in my emotions. It's not going to be my feelings. It's going to be based on God and who I have as a relationship, and that's with my Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. So I would like to look at three different types of legacies. Number one is Jacob's legacy. Number two is the brothers, and number three is Joseph's. In chapter 50, verses 1 through 14, we read a lot about uh, Jacob's burial. And what all is involved in that. When Jacob died, there was great sorrow in the family, as you would, of course, realize. There was a great hope for the future, but yet it brought them great grief. He had lived 147 years, 17 of those years uh, in Egypt. And he was being embalmed by the Egyptians. The Egyptians had a special way. They were famous for their embalming uh, procedures. And there were still mummies preserved over thousands of years. It took several physicians, specially trained physicians, and it took great amount of time. This one particularly took 40 days. They mourned Jacob. For 70 days, 
which seems like a long, long time to mourn. Obviously, these were official days of mourning because the father of their great governor, Joseph, had passed away. It's much like today when a great person dies. You know, flags are, are dropped to half-staff, and there are official days of mourning for, for, the, uh, for the person. What happened was Joseph then uh, clicked into the obligation that he had made, the uh, responsibility that he had to fulfill his promise to his dying father, and that was to take J Jacob's body back to Canaan. So Joseph uh, approached the household, the officials, the court of Pharaoh, and asks for permission to go back and bury his father. And it gets back to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh grants his request, and you'll notice in the text it says, because of the favor. Joseph was trying to, there are too many J words in this thing. I'm, I'm getting names confused. Joseph was trying to, to rely on the favor that he had received uh, from all the things that he had done in Egypt, and, and Pharaoh granted that request. I think it's very interesting that Joseph, as well as Jacob, was so highly respected and honored at this point. I want you to understand that. Because for Joseph to ask off his duties for this long to go to Canaan, do the things they needed to do there and back. It's not just a, you know, a couple of days journey, you know, to put someone in the ground. It's going to take some time. And he is number two in command. So it was a, uh, it was a major undertaking for the number two guy to be gone from the land for so long. But it was a great funeral possession. If, if, you'll, if you'll notice in verse uh, uh, eight, 7, 8, and 9, it's an incredibly large company that's going to accompany him. The dignitaries of not only Pharaoh's court, but the elders and dignitaries of the land of Egypt are going to go with him. They're going to be servants, there's going to be chariots and horses that go along with them. It was an incredible honor and privilege that they were uh, bestowing on Jacob, I mean, uh, and Joseph for, for going to take all the elders of the land generally and go off to travel to a foreign country, not just Joseph, but them was a big, big deal. You've got the chariots and the horsemen probably to provide security because you are going into a foreign land. And if the dignitaries of your land uh, get wiped out, you're going to be in major trouble. So here they are, and they go and they end up in, or, or they go to a threshing floor called Atad. My Bible has A-T-A-D. So they 
are going to a tad to have a tad more mourning. Seven days worth. Seven days worth. It makes an incredible impression on the Canaanites, if you'll read in, uh, uh, in verse 11. They saw what was going on and they said, this is an incredibly solemn occasion. They saw the great multitude of people. They saw the seven days of mourning and I thought, you know, this must be an incredibly important person. And they renamed or named the area Abel Mizraim, which means mourning of Egypt or Egyptians. They finished the mourning. They went to the cave in the field of Machpelah and Jacob's body was buried and they returned to Egypt. So just very quickly to sum up the legacy of Jacob, okay? The legacy of Jacob. We didn't talk about all the things he has done. Jacob has been a, uh, uh, a little bit of a rascal from the beginning. You know, the, the guy that you know, grabbed the heel and all that stuff. He's, he's been an interesting fellow. He's been an interesting fellow. But it seems like he's become uh, wiser in his older age, and with so much uh, grief in his life, particularly the, the years that he thought Joseph was dead, uh, I, just, I just can't imagine what that would have been like, and we talked about that. But, uh, but he has had, for good or for bad, uh, a legacy that he has left. Uh, overall, it's been good but he has affected the boys, I think, in, uh, in certain ways. But we'll have to leave it there, and we're going to leave it as a legacy of respect because they had incredible respect for the father of Joseph. The second legacy I call the brother's legacy of suspicion. Legacy of suspicion in verses 15 through 18. Look at the very first verse. When Joseph's brothers saw that the father was dead, they said, what if? What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? I want you to think about the suspicious nature of these brothers. Uh, given their background, this is not really surprising. They had a very genuine concern. This wasn't just a passing thought. The restraining factor of Joseph meeting out vengeance and judgment on the brothers in the brothers' mind was the presence of Jacob. And now Jacob is gone. And the brothers are sitting there saying, no telling what Joseph is going to do. Now, think about it just a minute. I don't want us to just read over this and forget about the assumptions that are being made here. I think we can easily make the assumptions that these guys are making. One of them is 
a common practice to project our motives, attitudes, behaviors onto others. What I mean by that is this. If I am a little bit of a rascal, okay, and you do something kind to me, what's my first thought? Something's up. <laughs> yeah. What do you want? You know, what, what, what's going on here? I, I project my, my, my motives, my, all these things on other people. And I think it could be that these boys are doing that. They've had such deep-seated feelings of hatred for so many years. Now, I didn't say the last 17 years. They said they repented. We're going to take them at face value. But at the same time, old habits die hard. And you sit there, and I'm not saying that they hated Joseph at all. They're probably wondering what in the world is going on with this guy that he's being so nice to us. But at the same time, at the same time, I think that they're sitting there going, our buffer's gone, Jacob's gone, and wonder what's going to happen to us. We treated Joseph bitterly and cruelly and projecting those own bad motives and attitudes onto Joseph, they're probably thinking, you know, what's Joseph going to do now? I want you to stop just a moment and I want you to think about a passage from Paul. Now, obviously these guys didn't have the Apostle Paul, okay? But these kinds of feelings have been there all along. Titus 1, starting in verse 15, says, To the pure, all things are pure. If I have my mind pure, I'm going to look for purity in your minds. Now, I'm not going to be ridiculous, you know. You're going to be, as, uh, you know, shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove kind of thing. You know that some people have bad motives, but at the same time, you're going to look for good things. But, Paul goes on to say, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good thing. These guys have lived such a life that it's easy for them to attribute bad motives somehow, some way. Because in their former life, if not now, they would have done the same thing if the roles had been reversed. They should have said, we are the rascals. We are the guys who don't do right. But Joseph's motives are pure. Joseph's characteristics. I mean, how long have they had to judge this man? Say 17 years. 17 years to judge this man and the first thing that comes out of their mouth, the first thought that comes out of their mind is, yep, he's going to let us have it now. What's, the, what's an assumption here? Well, another assumption might be this. They didn't believe the forgiveness in the first place. 
They may have not believed. Their fear and mistrust revealed that they may have fully not believed what was going on. You know, if you go back to chapter 45, that's where uh, Joseph is revealing himself. And all the sudden, the guys are terrified in his presence. Verse 3. This guy's in charge of Egypt. They're trapped. And they can't do anything. And he can do anything he wants. And in verses 4 and 5, Joseph said to his brothers, Come close. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me. God did this to save people. And then he hugged and kissed on Benjamin. Then he hugged and kissed on the brothers in an act of just absolute genuine forgiveness in the face of everything they had done. And yet they're sitting here and basically... It's this. Joseph's reconciliation and forgiveness was real, but somewhere along the line he's changed. Or they're thinking Joseph has been a hypocrite for 17 years and he's just been waiting for the chance for Jacob to die so that he can pay us back. Think about it. Think about it. It is a very difficult thing. And it it gives me pause to think that I might do that to people around me. I might look at people the way I would do rather than the way they would do before their father So they very quickly tell this story about one more wish that dad had. Now, whether they concocted it, the Bible does not say. Whether it's a real story, whether it was a concocted story, the Bible does not say. But they come and they send a message. They do not talk to him personally. They send a message to Joseph and say, dear old dad left some instructions for you to forgive us. Now, that gives us the impression, if this is real, that the dad is now privy to what these boys have done to Joseph and what what they did to him, what they did to him, if it is true. I don't know. And I'm not going to lean one way or the other. I know these guys' background. I know how they can slip back into these things very quickly. But I do know this. I do know this. Just as a side note, do you remember Luke 15 about the prodigal son? The prodigal son, in rehearsing his speech, said, I'm going to say I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. And what was the response to the father's forgiveness? Son, that will never do. You're my boy. 
bring out the nice robe, the nice meal, the nice shoes, the nice ring, and let's have a party. Unforgiving people can't stand that story. Because unforgiving people like to, like to bring uh, and have an angle, like to have something that they can hold over for, ne- for later if they need some leverage. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to look for things that I can maybe bring up to someone a long time. You know, someone, someone once, once said something about, what does uh, God mean when he says, uh, I'll remember your sins no more? What does that mean? And I thought of it like this. Let's pretend that you sin against me somehow, and that sin turns into a roller skate. Okay, I know it's weird, but stay with me a second. And ever so often, you do things to me. And guess how many roller skates I've got collected? And I'm keeping them on my belt. And one of these days, you're going to be coming down the steps. And those roller skates are going to be scattered all over those steps. That is not forgiveness that is storing up until I can come back and mete out my own revenge interesting that Joseph's legacy was of faithfulness and not of revenge verses 19 through 26 19 through 26 One of the things that I think is so interesting is Joseph's response. He had basically two kinds of responses. He had tears. The text does not say why he broke out into tears. I can make an educated guess, and you'll have to take it from there. He probably thought they never accepted his expressions of forgiveness, And it absolutely broke his heart. But what I'm trying to say is this. It didn't make him indignant. It didn't stir him to resentment. He didn't say, I am sick and tired of these guys. I have dealt with these people for 17 years. I've given them everything to survive and thrive And they are questioning my integrity. They're questioning my forgiveness. And I'm going to get them good. But he doesn't do that. He forgives them. He forgives them. It is totally devastating to him that he can give and give and give. And it's thrown back in his face. But his second response is interesting also. It's the truths that he tells. First of all, I am extremely impressed by the way he can resist temptation 
endure hardships and keep his spirits up. It had to be his belief in God. He left all the writings of wrongs to God. We've talked about this. I'm going through this very quickly just to remind you. He conquered his natural resentment by doing this. He didn't minim minimize the offenses. Oh, it was no big deal. No, y'all like that. Yeah. Y'all intended to harm me. I got it. You understand that. I got it. I understand that. He didn't try to minimize it. He didn't try to avoid it. He didn't try to, to, to nurse his grudge. He trusted God to do what was right. You know, that do not take revenge, leave room for God's wrath kind of thing in Romans 12. Second of all, he learned to see God's providence even in men's wickedness. He knew that God, regardless of any circumstance, could overrule, could overrule and bring about good. Paul talks about that in Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works. God works in everything for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The boys planned to hurt him. The guys who bought him wanted to make a profit. Potiphar's wife jailed him because she couldn't have him and she was jealous and she was spiteful and she was full of hate. But at the end of all the things, and I think this is a just a fascinating, fascinating thing, he says, am I God? Am I, verse 19, am I in place of God? This is God's work. He said, this is not my work. This is not my work. If you have repented, then it would be wrong for me to take vengeance on you. I think about all the different people in the Bible that, that are, are great examples for us. He also learned to repay evil with forgiveness and practical affection. At the end of that uh, Romans, it says, don't, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think about that. It's that do unto others as you would have them do to you. He reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. He continued to show by his deeds and his words, by his performances and by his promises, that I am going to continue to care for you and take care of you. And regardless of how ungrateful or wicked they might be, he gave genuine faithfulness because he was kind even to those who might be ungrateful. Just a few minutes just a few minutes, I want to bring this series to a conclusion. But I don't want to, I don't want to do this. 
okay, this here has been kindly big. I'd like to bring it down a little smaller. And I want to, I want to kindly keep with my notes because I want to make sure that I present it in the way that, that I think I need to. This story, this whole story, has been an application for us, a mirror for our lives. And I, I'm going back to the brothers part. The brothers was the smaller part, the 15 through 18, but I, I think it, maybe it just sheds some light on something that I need to take into my own life. Because I think we can very easily slip into what's going on uh, with, with what's happening to these brothers. And it ha doesn't have so much to do with sibling rivalry. It has to do with the forgiveness that we have received from Christ. There are people who have turned from their sins in repentance and faith. There are people who've received forgiveness. There are people who've been welcomed by Christ and caught up in His embrace. And yet they regularly ask themselves the question, what if? What if it, it's not real? What if it comes out differently than the Bible says? What if I'm not truly forgiven? What if I'm not going to heaven? What if God didn't really mean what he said? For some people, this doesn't cross their minds at all. For others, these doubts and misgivings are frequent, more frequent really, than we want to admit. And I remember those two assumptions that I was talking about about the brothers and I think about those in my own life. Do I project on God my imperfections, my inconsistencies? And number two, do I really believe God's infinite forgiveness in the first place? I want you to please turn to two passages with me. If you don't do this and you know somebody who comes to you sometimes and asks you what if, you can share this with them. If you do this and you ask constantly what if, these passages are definitely for all of us. First of all, I'd like for you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're not going to linger on either one of these. We're going to go to two passages. But I think it's just absolutely vital that we keep these passages in our minds as Christians. John, in his letter of Christian assurance says, starting in verse 19 of chapter 3, 1 John 3, 19, This then 
is how we know. Don't sit there and read it, you know, just casual. How we know. This is how we know. That's how he wrote it, that we belong to the truth. This is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us, whenever we have what ifs. This is it. Don't miss it. God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. The reality and truth of who God is and the promises He's made are so much more significant, so much more powerful, so much more monumental than any of our doubts and misgivings that may arise as a Christian believer. It's just so much more. The antidote is a strong faith, not you know, that's why Jesus said, if you just have a faith like a grain of mustard seed, it's not like I am, I'm, I'm working and I'm working and working to, to, to build up my faith. If I could just have 10% of my body having faith, that's not it. He's not looking for a percentage. He's not looking for, for some. If I could just have a, a grape's worth... You know, no. He said mustard seed. What does that mean? It's not about that. It's about who you have it in. Who you have it in. God is greater. If God said it, that's all. That's all. That's all we need. God said it. If God said, this is the way to my salvation through Jesus, my son, he means it. And I can rest assured in it. And I can have a solid faith in the grace and the mercy of God. Even if my little mustard seed looks like it's just Sad little thing. It is founded in God who is greater than everything. Assurance. Assurance. Number two, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The second passage I want us to look at is from Hebrews chapter 10. Read this whole shebang if you want to. I'm going to pick out just a few things and bring them out for you. Starting in verse 5. Don't get lost in the verbiage. Okay? Just, just read it as it is. 
Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. What's he talking about? When he came into the world, when he was born into the world, uh, born of woman, under the law, there was a body there. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here am I, as it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Now, don't get lost. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you didn't desire, or you weren't pleased with them, but the law required them. Why weren't you pleased with them? They weren't perfect. They weren't the end product. They were simply a shadow. They were simply a teaching tool to show you that over and over and over and over sacrifices had to be made. And don't you know, God had to be tired, you know, over and over and over, sin, 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 over and over and over sacrifices, but it was teaching us something. It was teaching us something that one of these days there's going to be a perfect sacrifice. There's going to be a perfect sacrifice come. And that sacrifice came. Verse 9, then he said, here am I, Jesus, here am I. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, listen, we have been made holy. You can't approach a holy God without being holy. How in the world have I been made holy? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Everything God wanted to accomplish, it's done. Everything that God prepared for my reunion with Him, it's done. It's accomplished. It's there. It's a done deal once for all. To put on Christ is to be made holy by His perfect work. There is no contingency plan once for all. It was the will of God, Isaiah 53.10, to bruise His Son. But the bruising was simply to let Him die, to bury Him, and to raise Him victorious. That was the plan. That was the plan in God through Jesus Christ, has done all that it needs. Sadly, sadly, if we're not careful, the what-ifs, the no assurance of forgiveness, the no assurance of the once-for-all sacrifice, the no assurance that I'm not sure that the debt has fully been paid, really calls for a re-sacrifice of Jesus. I have to trust. I have to have faith. No more what-ifs. God is not going to change His mind. God is not going to turn His back on us. God is not going to go back on His Word. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
He has done everything well to bring a relationship between me and my heavenly Father together. So in verse 13 of chapter 10, he says, Since that time, he, being Jesus, waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Can you imagine? He has dealt with everything. He's dealt with sin at the cross. He's dealt with death at the resurrection. He dealt a... a Somebody called it a checkmate at Calvary. Satan is checkmated. Footstool. Footstool. All these enemies are at his feet. And then in verse 17 that we've talked about earlier uh, tonight, I will remember their sins and lawless acts. No more. I have to ask forgiveness sometimes. Because I sometimes I'll bring something back up and back up and back up. And God will sit there and, and I can just imagine him sitting there going, you know, you really kind of surprised me. I can't even remember anything about that. Why can't you remember anything about it? Well, it's blotted out of the record. I've told you this. Believe it. Have faith in it. When we are tyrannized by our what-if syndrome, we need to allow the questions of our heart to be overturned by God's greatness, His mercy, his grace, and our faith in that so that we can live a life of humble certainty. I think that's what Joseph did. And I want to do the same. I want to do the same. This world is not my home. And I can face death with confidence because I can believe a God who said, no problem. No problem. Didn't Jesus say, you're not going to die anymore. You're not going to die anymore. You're going to be with me. Believe it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the day that you've provided. Thank you for watching over us and caring for us. Please help each and every one of us to live in the assurance that you are with us, that you are our great God, and we stand in awe of your power and your love and your grace and your mercy. Who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to have faith in you. And help us live victoriously in this life.
because of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.